we know that our only hope is Jesus. That is our foundation. That is our rock. And we view the world through those eyes, knowing that this world is not all that there is. We have so much more to look forward to. And we have you to guide us and to comfort us and to give us your everlasting peace as we walk through the rest of this life. We thank you for being our good and perfect Father who convicts us when there is conviction needed, who blesses us, who leads us, who teaches us, who grows us, who comforts us, and gives us your peace. We thank you for being everything we need. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few different news outlets and websites have taken polls and surveys the past couple of months. And before you tune me out, I'm not referring to political polls, all right? So don't tune me out yet. <laughs> These polls and surveys I'm referencing are what people miss the most about life during the ongoing coronavirus restrictions. Some lamented the simple pleasures in life, like all the way up to about a few weeks ago in New Jersey, spending time with a friend inside a coffee shop or a restaurant. Uh, others had to completely change life event plans, such as weddings, things they had been planning for a long time. But the one I found most interesting was the thing one person surveyed missed the most from pre-pandemic days was this, not worrying. That's what they missed the most before in the pre-pandemic days, not worrying. That says a lot about the current state of our country and the world. There are things that we all took for granted at the time, but now a little over six months later, we realize how much we miss them. I remember how much we all missed being able to gather together to worship together in any capacity for a few months. In the parable we'll be looking at today, there are people who take a certain life situation for granted and don't think at all about what they would be missing until it's too late. And then they realized what they've lost. We've been spending the past couple of weeks looking at Jesus' illustrations and parables concerning his partial return. Since we've covered this a lot more extensively in the past couple of weeks, I won't go into too much detail today. And if you want more detail on this, both of those messages are up on our website and podcast platforms. What I want to reiterate from what we focused on the past couple of weeks is that Matthew 24 describes two distinct returns. Jesus has already come once. Matthew 24 describes two distinct returns of Jesus in the end times. The first is a partial return called the rapture. You may have heard that term before, which Jesus refers to in the verses immediately preceding what we're talking about this morning from chapter 24, verse 36 through verse 51, in which Paul describes more clearly of in 1 Thessalonians 4. In this event, Jesus will come down out of heaven and call up all those who had previously put their faith and trust in them for their salvation, both those who had died before that point and those still living at that point. 
We will be caught up to meet Jesus and our loved ones whose souls Jesus brings back with him and all be given transformed bodies fit for eternity. I know I'm not the only one looking forward to that. Amen? It will be an incredibly joyous time for us as we're united with our King, reunited with our loved ones, and we'll be with Him forever. But as Paul tells the Corinthian church, this will all happen in the instant of a blink of an eye. So no one who isn't caught up won't see it. And so as Jesus describes towards the end of Matthew 24, for those who did not put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation, what this will be will be a time of unprecedented chaos and destruction. No one will understand what happened to a bunch of the world's population, and there will be all sorts of conspiracy theories flying around to try to explain it. Following the first event of the end times, known as the rapture, will come all the other end times events found elsewhere in scripture, starting with a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, a time of God's wrath poured out upon the earth in payback for its thousands of years of evil, a time unlike anyone has ever seen. You think you've seen some stuff now. You haven't seen anything when it comes to the tribulation. Following the Great Tribulation period will be the full second coming of Christ when he fully returns to earth at the Battle of Armageddon and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. In short, the horrific end times events will be bookended by Jesus returning. The first, only a partial return for his church, and the second, his full return to earth in victory. One of the biggest distinctions of the first return, the rapture, will be the promise that it will happen completely out of nowhere. All the prophecies that needed to happen before it, it needs it—all it, it, uh, the prophecies that needed to happen before it have already happened. There's nothing holding it back, and to everyone, it will simply be life as usual as it's been for thousands of years, until suddenly, it's not. To those not raptured, this will be an incredible time of confusion and loss. Like I said, they will not understand what happened when a bunch of people suddenly disappear out of nowhere and will continue to not understand until the first tribulational judgments from God come and destroy them. In that way, at that point, it will be too late for them. Jesus' illustrations in Matthew 36 through 41 are mainly directed at those who don't put their faith in Jesus before his first return in order to warn them to stop playing around and to put their trust in him right away before it's too late. Since we have no clue when the rapture will occur and we have no clue when it's time for us to die, no human has the luxury of playing around. I've said it time and time again, agnosticism is not a legitimate religious label because all it is is an attempt at prolonging the inevitable. If you do not place your trust in Jesus for your salvation before you die or before he returns, both of which could be at any moment, five minutes from now, without any warning, 
your fate will be the same as someone who consciously rejected Jesus their entire lives. The cold, hard truth is that fate is the place of darkness and of physical and emotional torment that Jesus describes as hell. Jesus is following two parables. In Matthew 24, 42 through 51, oppositely are directed mainly towards believers in Jesus or people who show up to church. Since the day and time of our rapture by Jesus, again, is unknowable, we must also be on the alert. And that alertness must translate to caring for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and doing the work and serving Jesus that he's called each and every one of us to do. If we don't remain on the alert and we don't live our lives for Jesus and his kingdom, when, ju when Jesus judges all we say and do, while we'll remain saved and we'll enter heaven, all we'll have left to show for our lives is a pile of ashes. If we do remain on the alert and we do live our lives for Jesus and his kingdom and we do the work he has for us all to do, when Jesus judges all we say and do, we'll have eternal reward doled out by Jesus himself. Never underestimate what that eternal reward will be. Jesus' illustrations a couple of weeks ago were directed towards unbelievers. And the parables last week were directed towards believers, and that's why I said people who show up to church, because in church you have believers, people who have actually put their faith and trust in Jesus, and people who haven't actually put their faith in Jesus. Similar to last week, the parable we're looking at today is directed at believers and people who only pretend to be believers, or people who think they're good enough on their own. Two groups of people are compared and contrasted here in connection with Jesus' surprise and shocking rapture of his church. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Matthew chapter 25. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Matthew 25 or look it up on your Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 2. And we, re we read this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. The opening word of then that you have here is making the clear connection to the verses immediately preceding it, namely the illustrations and parables starting in chapter 24, verse 36. Since those verses have to do with the rapture, the first parable in chapter 25 also has to do with the rapture. More specifically, how things will be immediately preceding the rapture. These first two verses set up the whole background and the whole setting for this parable, which all of us, and we read that, undoubtedly completely understand no problem, right? I can shut my Bible, we can all go home. You got it, right? All right. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. All right, the entire parable is referencing first century Jewish wedding custom that Bible scholars have to piece together from historical evidence. 
even though I'm sure it's not perfect, we can have a pretty good idea of these Jewish wedding customs that Jesus' listeners no doubt would have understood immediately, just from these two verses. Those wedding customs are these. There are some slight similarities to, modern, to, to the American modern process of getting married and some big differences. In our modern American understanding as Bible-believing Christians, the process usually is a man and a woman meet, grow a relationship, get engaged, and get married. There is usually some kind of wedding party chosen with at least a maid of honor along with other bridesmaids in, in, on her side and a best man along with other groomsmen. The invitations go out for a wedding date, guests come to witness the ceremony, and then celebrate that same day at a reception. Then they all go home, and the new husband and wife go on with their wedding night and the rest of their lives. In first century Jewish custom, it was a little bit different. A marriage may or may not have been arranged, but when a man and a woman knew they wanted to marry each other, the man would go to the woman's father and give him some sort of financial gift. Don't tune me out yet. Contrary to what some may think, this wasn't to show that the man was buying the woman from her father as some kind of property. What the purpose of this financial gift was, was to help alleviate any new financial strain on the woman's family with her no longer contributing to that family's income. You see that? All right. At that point, if the father agreed, the man and woman exchanged vows of fidelity towards each other, and the year-long period known as betrothal began. Betrothal was a lot more of a legal status back then than engagement is seen today. The man and woman were considered legally married at the point of betrothal. Now, I'm not advocating for the possible unfairness towards the woman here, but during this year-long period known as betrothal, if the woman was found to become pregnant during this betrothal period, she would suffer intense societal humiliation and great loss. Her betrothed had every right, according to the Jewish law, to break off the betrothal and leave the woman to destitution if that child was not his. So, you can see the intense pressure Jesus' own mother would have been upon becoming pregnant by way of the Holy Spirit and having to tell Joseph about it. During this betrothal period, the man would go and get a home situated for his future wife. On the day of the wedding, the feast would start and further vows would be exchanged, officially marrying the man and woman. After a day of celebratory dancing, it was customary for the wedding festivities to happen in the evening, after dark. What would happen was the groom would send out the announcement that he was coming to the bride's father's house to escort the bride back to his father's house where the rest of the wedding festivities would occur. The groom would eventually then leave his father's house. While he was on the way to the bride's father's house, the bride's bridesmaids, or described here as fellow virgins, would go and meet the groom on the way. Is everybody with me so far? Okay. I know it's a lot different than what we have today. Then, 
the groom and the bridesmaids who met him halfway would meet the bride at her father's house, and they would all go back to the groom's father's house for the wedding together. That was the whole processional. That, meeting the groomsmen by the bridesmaids, escorting him the rest of the way to the bride's father's house, then escorting both the groom and the bride to the groom's father's house for the actual wedding was the most important job for the bridesmaids in Jesus' day, on that wedding day. It was the most important job. Because this whole procession would have customarily occurred after dark, this was usually done with the bridesmaids holding torches to light their way. According to one biblical scholar, the historical evidence points to these lighting devices described in this chapter being torches and not small oil lamps. In fact, it's the same exact word used here in Matthew 25, uh, Matthew 25, 1. It's the exact same word used by John when he describes the Roman soldiers and Jewish officers coming to arrest Jesus with torches. It's the same exact word used there. These torches, now stay with me. This is all very important for the rest of the understanding of this parable. These torches would have been sticks with oil-soaked rags wrapped around the tops of them. However, torches were notorious for not lasting very long. In fact, as one biblical scholar noted, there is historical evidence that suggests these torches only lasted for about 15 minutes with one oil-soaked rag. At that point, the burned-up rag would need to be removed, thrown away, and another oil-soaked rag wrapped around the end of the stick again. So, especially if you needed to do a task at night, you needed plenty of oil and rags. All of that background, so those of you who fell asleep during all that evidence, you can wake up again. <laughs> all of that background is what sets us up for the rest of this story. There were 10 bridesmaids for this particular bride in this story. Jesus sets up that half of those 10 are prudent and wise, and the other half of those 10 are foolish and dysfunctional. Why? Verses 3 through 4. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. All of these bridesmaids knew what their position was. They weren't dropped into this position from 21st century America and expected to know what to do. They knew exactly what their position was and exactly what they were supposed to do. They were all well aware that as soon as they heard the groom was on his way, they needed to light their torches and go out to meet him on the way. And while they didn't know the exact time they would need to be ready, they all knew the groom would be coming soon. Knowing all of this, those bridesmaids didn't, that purposely didn't pack extra oil and rags for their torches truly were foolish. They purposely didn't pack extra oil and rags. This wasn't an accident. They purposely just didn't want to do it. They knew they were going to need it, they purposely didn't prepare anything. Not only were those bridesmaids foolish, their foolishness was precipitated by pure laziness and simply not caring. That says a lot about the, about the selfishness 
of these foolish bridesmaids. They weren't just foolish. Their laziness betrayed their selfishness. They simply didn't care about the procession, which directly meant they didn't care about the groom and most certainly didn't care about the bride they were supposed to be supporting. That heart state and mindset will be extremely important when we come to the end of this parable. According to one biblical scholar, the groom, for whatever reason, as was the custom back in Jesus' day, was usually late. I could make many a joke here, but I'm not going to. We don't know why it was the custom, but in most cases, he wanted his arrival to be a surprise. That fits hand in hand perfectly with Jesus' desire to make sure everyone knew his return would be a complete surprise. That's why we come to verse 5 and we read this. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. The groom, as was customary, was late in coming to escort his bride to the wedding. Now, the emphasis is not on how the, how the, on the, on the groom being late, because that was part of the custom. The emphasis is not on the groom being late because that was the custom. The emphasis is on how the bridesmaids respond to his lateness. That's what the emphasis is on. And the emphasis is not even on all the bridesmaids getting drowsy and some falling asleep. I don't blame them because after all, like I mentioned earlier in this message, they just spent the whole day dancing in celebration for the upcoming wedding ceremony. You dance all day and then not feel drowsy in the evening. As one biblical scholar pointed out, Jesus included this information to show the length of the delay of the groom. Because the groom was so long in coming to get his bride, all of the bridesmaids, including the wise ones, started growing weary and started to fall asleep. And then, all of a sudden, at midnight, <laughs> think of the long day you've already had. At midnight, the announcement comes that the groom has finally left his father's house and is on his way. Verse 6, but at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Talk about late, huh? The groom didn't start coming to get his bride until midnight of that day. But that's not the point. The point is that the bridesmaids were now on. The most important part of their job for this wedding day is happening. They're now on. Their part in this Jewish wedding custom was to be played now. And so they all woke up and lit the original oil-soaked rags around their torches and headed out to meet the groom, verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Before long, though, since we know these torches didn't last any longer than 15 minutes, one by one, they started going out. And the foolish bridesmaids realize just how foolish and lazy and uncaring they've been. Because now what's going to happen? They can't hide it anymore. Their torch is out and they got nothing to relight it. They are now found out. They'll be found out 
if something doesn't happen soon. And so verse 8, The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. However, they took the wise bridesmaid's wisdom for granted, and they didn't expect this response. Verse 9, But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. When we first read this, we might think, whew, these wise bridesmaids are brutal. <laughs> but knowing all the background to this parable, we understand why the wise bridesmaids respond this way. Because they were the wise ones to begin with, and making sure they had enough oil and rags for their own torches, we know they're focused on their full support of the bride and groom and their wedding procession being as honorable as possible. The foolish ones only cared about themselves and didn't care at all about how their lack of preparation would affect the procession and make it potentially humiliating towards the bride and groom. Remember, everything in those days was about custom, right? Everything was about custom. Anything not done according to custom was scandalous, humiliating, and dishonorable. People would be talking about it for years after the fact. For the foolish bridesmaids to have messed with the custom and have half of them have dead torches by the time the groom arrived to escort his bride was exactly that. And that is how everybody else was going to see it. The wise bridesmaids knew that having some of their torches lit was better than them sharing their oil and having none of their torches lit by the time the groom arrived. The selfish bridesmaids had no other course of action than to try to fix the mess they'd made and try to buy some more oil. But remember, what time is it right now? It's midnight. You think, especially in Jesus' day, any local oil distributors would have been awake, much less open at that point? No. And in fact, one biblical scholar noted that perhaps a catering business would still be open to sell oil at that point, but only near or in a major city. That was never a given. You couldn't bank on that. The chances were that they were not in the selfish bridesmaid's favor of finding any oil by the time the groom arrived. But again, remembering how much honor had to do with custom, they had to try, or they faced even greater dishonor and humiliation in the community. So off those selfish bridesmaids went. Well, what do you think happened while they were gone? Yep, the groom finally showed up. Verse 10, and while they were going to make their purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. The wise and prepared bridesmaids went and met the groom and led him to the bride's father's house, where he met his bride, and then the groom, bride, and five of the original bridesmaids proceeded back to the groom's father's house. Even though it was after midnight, I don't know how they had the energy for all this, 
The wedding festivities then proceeded in full swing. The feast began, more vows were exchanged between the bride and the groom, and the groom ceremonially led his new wife to their new home. After all of that happens, guess who shows up? The selfish bridesmaids, verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. The text doesn't tell us if they were even successful in buying any extra oil at that time of the night. My guess is that they weren't, but they still showed up anyway and tried to get in. But verse 10, which we already read, tells us the door was already shut. Now in that time period, shutting the door was a lot bigger of a deal than it is today. Today, if we were having a dinner party and some guests showed up on time and we shut the door and others showed up late, we wouldn't refuse to open the door and say, mm, no, you were here five minutes too late. <laughs> it would only take the flip of a switch on the door lock and let them in. But back in those days, shutting the door required shoving a big bolt across the door, which was noisy and cumbersome. Because of all this, arriving after all the effort was already made to lock the door with this bolt, if you arrived late after that, that was seen as extremely rude and disrespectful of the party's host. It's no wonder then that the groom shouted back through the already both literally and figuratively shut and locked door, verse 12, but he answered, truly I say to you, I don't know who the heck you are. I do not know you. What the selfish bridesmaids had done was way too disrespectful and dishonorable towards him and his bride on what was supposed to be their honorable and perfect wedding day, and they would not be rewarded. Jesus again reiterates his ongoing point throughout the second half of chapter 24 and in this first parable of chapter 25, verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is the last illustration and story in this section having to do with the surprise factor of Jesus' return for his church. And again, like I mentioned at the beginning of this message, this is directed at both unbelievers and, and, and believers this time as the wrap-up parable of the surprise factor of Jesus' first return. We can see this because it includes groups that represent both believers and unbelievers. Similar to one of last week's parables, one of these groups represents those believers who are living the way God wants them to live and are prepared for his coming. And one of these groups represents those who are only pretending to be believers, but really only live their lives for themselves and their own selfish ambitions and desires. And similar to last week's parable about the servant, these need to take a very hard look at themselves. They need to take a very hard look at themselves and take a very hard look at their priorities and question whether or not they are really a believer in the first place. The selfish bridesmaids thought they could look like good and responsible bridesmaids, but continue to live only for themselves. They thought that since they had a torch, 
They could look like a good and wise person, and that could be good enough. They thought they didn't actually have to change anything about themselves. They didn't think they needed to prepare themselves in in any way. They didn't think they needed to make a decision to live any differently than how they'd been living their entire life. See, the way the selfish bridesmaids behaved during what was supposed to be an honorable processional wasn't any different from the way they lived the rest of their lives. There's no surprise here. That's just the way they lived the rest of their lives. That was just how they always were. The processional simply revealed their true colors, revealed who they really are. And that's exactly what Jesus' rapture of his church will reveal. Jesus won't be fooled. Those who have recognized that their inherent sinful sinfulness separates them from God and makes it impossible for them to be good enough to enter heaven on their own and know that they need a Savior to rescue them and accept Jesus both as that Savior from their sin and the King over the rest of their lives will be snatched away and gone from this earth. Those who thought they were good enough on their own or thought they could fake it or thought they could claim to be a Christian but never actually surrender their lives to Christ and turn from their selfishness will be left on earth. They'll be revealed for who they really are. There will be nothing to hide behind at that point. Who they really are will be revealed as crystal clear as those who loudly rejected and denounced Jesus. And I know this is the cold, hard truth, but I want you to know the cold, hard truth. Their torches of perceived inherent goodness will have been blown out, and they will have missed the groom, Jesus, coming to get his bride, the church. And then when they've realized they missed Jesus coming for his church, it'll be too late. The door will have been shut and bolted in. They will be left outside on earth to face the coming and unspeakably horrific great tribulation. And we as believers, those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and King, must also be on the alert and be prepared. We get ourselves prepared by making sure we've made everything in our lives right with God. So we live lives of exemplary moral light and faith to those watching us. Jesus commanded earlier in this gospel, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. No one puts their faith and trust in Jesus and then hides behind everything. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. How many times have we heard that or read that in Sunday school or VBS or some other form? How often do we put it into practice? Don't hide your torch, your light of Jesus, but put it out front for all to see. And not only that, but get everything in your life right with God now so you can continue to keep that light burning brightly and not going out. Be renewed 
and rejuvenated by the power and boldness of the Holy Spirit to go out into this dark world and bear the good news of Jesus to a confused and hurting world. Look at the headlines. Everything is in complete chaos right now. If there was any time when Jesus' words to his disciples are proven true, it's now when he says to look around, wake up and look around and see that the fields are ripe for the harvest of souls. During no other time in the past few decades have so many people been so confused and disheartened and destroyed by this world and its message and in need for you to give them the hope of Jesus at no other time in this world. Extending that interpretation a little bit. Yes, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he would return for his church. But remember, Peter tells us not to think of God's slowness in returning like the world thinks of it. He's doing it to have more grace on people, not because he's forgotten to return. Yes, it's been long hours on the night as we approach midnight. And yes, we're tired, but don't fall asleep. Brothers and sisters, wake up. Take advantage of this time of people searching for something more than what's right in front of their faces and give it to them. Do the work Jesus has called each and every one of you to do. Don't grow lazy. Don't grow selfish. Prepare yourself. Be on the alert. You have no clue what God will do with the torch you keep burning brightly for him without growing weary. So today, if you've allowed yourself to doze spiritually, wake up. We don't know when the groom will return for his bride. The announcement has been made that he's on his way. So let all of us await his coming with great anticipation and preparation. Once he's come and the wedding feast has begun, it'll be too late. What we've said to others about Jesus at that point will be all we can say to them about Jesus at that point. If it's nothing, it will continue to be nothing. We will not be able to do anything more at that point. So, let us all prepare ourselves for the groom, Jesus, and his return for us. If there's someone we know, and I know this, I know God is bringing someone to each and every one of your minds right now. I know he's doing that. If there's someone we need to share Jesus with, do it now. We do not know when it will be too late. And in connection with that, if there's something in our lives we haven't yet surrendered to God and gotten right with him yet, do it now. We don't know when it will be too late. If there's something we need to do in serving Jesus in our church and our community, do it now. We don't know when it will be too late. Jesus is coming back. He's promised it. It has been announced. 
He's on his way. Do what you need to do to be prepared. Wake up and be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful parable in your word. I pray that we would not grow weary. I pray that we would not get lazy. I pray that we would not get selfish. But Lord, I pray that we would all wake up. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not made that commitment to you, I pray that they would do it now. That they would ask you for forgiveness of their sin, knowing that you took their place on the cross and make you the king of their lives. If somebody did it a long time ago, but they know they're not walking with you, Lord, I pray you'd shake them up and that you would churn there in their hearts and they wouldn't find any peace until they recommit their lives to you. I pray if there's somebody here who has accepted Jesus as their Savior and their King a long time ago, and they've been walking with him for years, but they're weary and they're tired, I pray that you would give them strength. And if there's anybody here who has accepted Jesus as their Savior and their King, but they haven't gotten something right with you yet, that they would do that right now. That we may be one as a church, extending the hope of Jesus to this hurting and confused and in pain and dark world before it's too late. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.